Psalm 91, if you would, please. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, this past week, <clears throat> one of the little girls at camp up in South Carolina came to my wife and said, uh, Miss Amy, is it true that God created Eve from one of Adam's ribs? And Miss Amy said, yes, ma'am, it's true. She said, uh, is that why men only have 15 ribs while women have 16 ribs? And Miss Amy said, well, I don't think that's quite the case. And the girl's immediate response was to turn to an adult and say, hand me your phone, I'll Google it. <laughs> the adult then responded by saying, now, you can't believe everything you read on Google. I just want to remind you of that today. How many times have we gone to research something or look something up? How often have you or someone around you just blurted out, Let's ask Google. Let's ask Siri. Well, raise your hand if you've asked Google and got two completely different answers to your question. Yeah, see, that, that's like most of us. It's so frustrating to me, whether it has something to do with your health or trying to solve a problem around your home or trying to improve your life on any level, it's so frustrating to me to go to the Internet download seven easy steps that evidently it sounds like work for everybody, force your way through the first five and lose interest because nothing seems to be improving your situation. I don't know how you feel about this, but I can point to multiple areas in my life, especially regarding my health or my back, where I have gone down this road to no avail, and I've gone down that road to no avail, and I've done what seems to help everybody, but it didn't help me. And finally, I'm left with a reliance upon God to help me live with it. It's shocking to me how often that, that happens. We started this series of messages a few weeks ago, not to convince you that technology is somehow wrong or out of bounds for a follower of Christ. It's not. Technology, uh, specifically the internet, your smartphone, that's neither good nor evil. Uh, it's more amoral. But, but what we want you to do is examine the impact that technology is having on our culture. How is technology, specifically your smartphone, the internet, social media, how is that impacting your marriage, your relationships, church community, even your faith walk? We chose this verse, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, to kind of be a theme verse. Solomon wrote, guard your heart above all else. Now remember, I've told you, Whenever a biblical author speaks of the heart, he's not talking about that muscle that pumps blood. He's talking about the center of your will, the center of your affection. Solomon says, guard that above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Anything, church, anything, social media or otherwise, that draws our attention and focus, our affection away from God rather than to him ought remain suspect for the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, Jonathan pointed out several things, and I wrote down a handful of them, and I want to remind you specifically of two of them and build on the last one. Last week, Jonathan said, somewhere along the way, we decided that capturing life is better than experiencing life. Have you noticed this? Somewhere along the way, we decided that filming an event, photographing, and then posting an event is more important than actually experiencing said event. It seems more important, especially to our young people, to prove I was there by posting the picture than it was to experience whatever it was that happened at the event or with the person. He also said 
that some of us, sadly, are more intimate with our devices than we are the people closest to us. Some of us are more intimate with our devices than we are with the people closest to us. Now, that last statement is the one I want to build upon today. Some are more intimate with their devices than they are the people closest to them. How many times, how many times have you wondered about what's in someone else's cell phone? I saw a very interesting exercise on a television show where they asked husbands and wives to swap cell phones for a week. They were going to have the numbers changed, but I was actually going to get to keep my wife's device for a week, and she was going to actually get to keep my device for a week. And out of eight couples with this opportunity, only one of them were willing to do so. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that Jonathan is right, that many of us are more intimate, more secretive, more private. We're closer with our devices than we are the people in our lives, we should be close to. Do you know that the, uh, there are plenty of studies out there on this. The average cell phone owner, smartphone owner, checks that cell phone 80 times a day. 80 times a day, I check social media. I check text messages. I go to my email account. I make a phone call 80 times a day. It's remarkable. Listen, I'll tell you something, church, and if this offends you, please forgive me. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But I have had people in my office desiring to speak to their pastor about something important, serious, and private. Tears could be coming down their face, and in the midst of our conversation, they'll have to look at their phone. It will buzz. It will beep. They'll pull it from their purse. They'll take it from their pocket. Multiple times a day, I am convinced, I am convinced, as sure as I'm standing here, that we don't realize how dependent we are on our smartphones. I told you the very first time we examined this topic that technology has always been man's substitute for God. Technology began in response to the fall of humanity, the curse upon the planet. Technology is designed to make this life as good as we can possibly make it. And there's not one thing in the world wrong with that. I thank God, some of you saw me outside handing out programs this morning, sweat pouring from my face. I thank God I'm in an air-conditioned auditorium right now. I thank God for technology. But remember, the subconscious, almost subliminal teaching is that if we can make this life as good as possible, we'll have no need for God and no consideration for the next life. We can live autonomously apart from any judgment of God because this life is all that counts. So here's the point today, the main point. The goal for the follower of Christ is true intimacy with God, not intimacy with technology. That's the goal. That's what I want you to see today. Now, look, when I use the word intimacy, a lot of people immediately think sex or sexuality. That's not what intimacy means. Intimacy means closeness. Intimacy means that maybe I share something with you that I don't share with everybody else. I may tell you something that I wouldn't tell the whole church. That creates intimacy. My wife and I experience intimacy not because of our sex life, but because I tell her things. She sees in me certain things that no one else does. Listen, I'll tell my staff things I won't tell you in public. I'll tell the board things I won't tell you in public. That's because in every one of our lives, there are certain levels of intimacy 
And I want you to understand today, for the follower of Jesus Christ, intimacy with God is the goal. And often technology is vying or competing with that intimacy. See, what we're talking about is we're talking about trust. And trust is critical to intimacy. In fact, I would call it the most intimate of relational qualities. You remove trust from a relationship and there is no intimacy. You see, the reason I can tell my wife something that I wouldn't tell the staff is because I trust her more than I trust John. Of course, anybody would. (laughs) The reason I can tell my staff something I wouldn't say publicly or over the internet is because I trust my staff more than I do the public. The reason, listen, church, I would tell you something, say something here in front of you that I wouldn't say out there in the community is because I trust you more than them. Our level of intimacy is greater than my level of intimacy with the community. You understand that. The goal of the Christ follower is to experience that kind of intimacy when it comes with God. And trust is the key relational quality to intimacy. The Bible has all kinds of things to say about trust. Psalm 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, we trust the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Leave that verse on the screen for a moment. In today's culture, it might be better served. Psalm 118, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in Google. And so many of us do. So many of us trust Siri more than God. Do you know that doctors are reporting an increased, an increase in anxiety prescription medications? And one of the reasons some doctors believe this is so is because what happens when we sit down for a checkup or we've got a problem or there's a pain or there's a something and the doctor strings together a few words and maybe writes a prescription, what do we do when we get to the car? We start Googling some of the terminology the doctor said in his office. So rather than engage personally in a conversation with my doctor face-to-face, we're leaving our doctors and we're going to some web page that we can plug in our symptoms And what happens when we do it? Our level of anxiety increases, doesn't it? How many of us have ever looked up something that one of our relatives said, a doctor told them, and felt anxiety after reading 15 pages worth of what-ifs and symptoms and possible outcomes and statistics? You see, I want to grow a church where when we go to our doctor and he sees some number on a blood test that he doesn't really like and maybe the blood pressure isn't where he'd like it to be or he says there's a possible condition and it's this, I'd rather see us walk out, sit in our car and give that to our Heavenly Father rather than jump on our cell phones to get more information. Come on, guys. You know what I'm talking about. The scriptures say a lot about intimacy, primarily in three categories. Number one, the scriptures speak of intimacy with God from Psalm 91. We're going to get into that in a minute. Intimacy with God. Number two, the scriptures speak of intimacy with your spouse. Now, everybody understands that. The scriptures go as far as to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4 
that my body is not my body. It belongs to my wife. And my wife's body is not her body. It belongs to her husband. I've had 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 stenciled on the wall of our bedroom. (laughs) That closeness, that trust, that bond that's there because God expects spouses to be intimate with one another. The Bible also speaks of intimacy with others. Do you know that James chapter 5 and verse 16 says that it is a good thing for you to confess your sins to those who love you? Wow. Think about how countercultural that is. James chapter 5, verse 16, read it yourself. It's part of a greater passage on sin and suffering. James says, look, go to people in your church who love you who will surround you with prayer and encouragement, who will hug your neck and cheer for you, who will weep with you and confess your sins. We don't do that, do we? Do you know what happens in our modern modern culture? Because I would argue of the incredible impact of technology and privacy and secrecy over community, we just go to another church when we fail. When we're embarrassed, we just disassociate from the people who know us. Do you know that people have left this church in the last 10 years or so to go to another church and I may run into somebody in town and I know why they left? There was some sort of marital blow up, either the embarrassment or the humiliation or the failure. It was was sexual in nature and they leave this church to go to another church and I run into the pastor or I run into someone in the church and they say, hey, we've got the so-and-sos coming to our church. Now, well, listen, don't take it personally, but they just couldn't find what they were looking for at Grace when I know otherwise. They didn't leave because they couldn't find what they were looking for. They left because our way is not to huddle up with people who love us and have them encourage us, pray with us, and cheer for us and weep with us. The way is to just go to another church and ignore it, forget it ever happened. Imagine if we dealt with suffering and heartache the same way. Imagine if when you experienced great loss in your life, Rather than turn to people who love you, who will weep for you, who will assure you that they feel your pain, who will write you notes of encouragement, send you encouraging text messages. Rather than do all that, you just disappeared and pretended like it didn't happen and went to another social group or another church. That's why the Bible says it is a good thing in community. The level of intimacy is such that we ought to be able to encourage one another even when we stumble and fall. Now, nearly all the Psalms, if you've ever spent much time there, have certain themes. Uh, some Psalms are all about worship, and some songs or Psalms are all about praise, and some Psalms are, are all about the faithfulness of God. Psalm 91 has a very specific and telling theme. I'm not going to read it yet, but let me just point out a couple of, uh, of words in these verses or in this chapter. In verse 1, you've got the words shelter and shadow. In verse 2, you've got the word refuge and fortress. In verse 3, you've got the words deadly pestilence. In verse 4, you've got the words shield and rampart. In verse 5, you've got the word terror by night and arrow by day. And so on and so forth it goes. You get the picture. The psalmist here of Psalm 91 is speaking about safety, refuge, and peace in the midst of warfare battle, and suffering. This is not a physical battle, the author describes. This is a spiritual battle. We all, as followers of Christ, have a a spiritual enemy 
that is out for our destruction. You need to understand that. Paul wrote about that in Ephesians chapter 6. Read it for yourself. Psalm 91 describes what God can do for us when we live in intimate fellowship with our king. He becomes our fortress. He becomes our refuge. He becomes our shield. The question today is, who are you going to trust? The God of Psalm 91 or an answer on the first page of Google? Who are you going to trust? Look with me at verse 1. The author writes, whoever dwells, that's a very key word right there, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest, another key term, in the shadow of the Almighty. Dwelling and rest come actually from a very similar Hebrew word. They both mean remain, sit, abide. The key to finding refuge in this life, the key to finding rest, peace in the midst of difficulty, is dwelling in the presence of God. You see, a casual relationship with God isn't going to cut it. Sort of one of those one-sided, God, what can you do for me relationships? I came to church on Sunday, didn't get anything out of it kind of situation. That's not going to produce the same results. The idea of remaining, dwelling, sitting, abiding, that's very key to the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 2. So I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There it is again. Trust and intimacy go hand in hand in Scripture. Verse number three, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your rampart. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night. Look at that. You will not fear. Can you imagine, can you even fathom a fear-free existence? Let me ask you a question. How often has Google removed your fear? How often has Google answered your question so thoroughly as to remove all doubt? And yet, the psalmist is promising God can do just that. Verse number six. Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you for you will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge, if you say the Lord is my refuge, that's the statement that reflects the belief that's on the inside. If you say the Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my peace, the Lord is my contentment, the Lord is my hope. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, now look, all the promises contained in Psalm 95, uh, 91 hinge on those two conditions. Are you the kind of person who is so secure in what you believe regarding your God, your Heavenly Father, that you could actually say, you know, He's my refuge. Ultimately, it's not my doctor. It's not the newest medication. Ultimately, it's not something I've read on Google. Ultimately, it's not what I'm supposed to do financially to retire comfortably. Ultimately, it's God who is my refuge. And when you say it with your mouth, it's then authenticated by your living 
by your living as though he is your dwelling. Verse 10, if that's the case, then no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Skip down to verse 14. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I'm going to rescue him. Because she loves me, says the Lord, I'm going to protect her. For he acknowledges my name. For no other reason. You don't earn that kind of guarantee. You don't earn that kind of promise. We don't set our lives up in such a way that God is forced upon blessing us. But for no other reason, because he loves you and you respond by loving him back. Intimacy. Trust. Because he loves me. Because she loves me, says the Lord, I'm going to rescue him. I'm going to protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Today, I want you to simply think of one simple thought. In these incredibly accelerated times in which we live, largely due to the technology you hold in your hand or have tucked away in your pocketbook, who do you trust? Ultimately, who do you trust? I wonder if the person concerned with their health, based upon a test result or a doctor's visit, if the first person trusts Google to guide them through that circumstance, I wonder how they fare with a person who receives that same troubling news but trusts God as their refuge. I wonder if this person goes to their cell phone 80 times a day, what it would do for this person to come before God 80 times a day. I wonder, I just wonder. Intimacy with God, according to Psalm 91, produces some incredible things. I've noted three. Number one, he saves us from the snare. The author says in the third verse, he saves us from the snare. You know what a snare is? A snare is like a trap. It's meant to entangle us. We're lured to the bait like a fish. And what once seemed appealing to us, and that's what drew us in, now that we're tangled up in it, it appalls us. It sickens us. Psalm 91 says, if you have intimacy with God, if you're that close because you trust him, he'll save you from the fowler's snare. Now, remember, we're talking about the dweller. We're talking about someone who's serious about their faith. Listen to me, church. Let me be very careful here, but very direct. Dwellers, as Psalm 91 describes them, those with intimacy with God, don't become alcoholics because they act before the snare completely entangles them. Dwellers don't become drug addicts because they act before the snare com completely envelops them. Dwellers don't stand by and watch their marriage fall apart, crumble before their very eyes because they act before it happens. Here's number two. According to verse four, if you're intimate, intimate with God, he'll protect you from the storm. Now, everybody knows what a storm in life is like. I'm just learning what a Twitter storm is all about. You know, somebody puts themselves out there, and before they know it, here come 3,000 hateful responses. 
According to Psalm 91, if you develop intimacy with God, if you truly trust God, he'll protect you from the storms in life. Nowhere does the passage say he'll remove the storm. In fact, Jesus never prayed that he would remove, that God would remove his disciples from the troubles of the world. He prayed that they would remember while they're in the world, he's overcome the world. Big difference. What Psalm 91 teaches is if you know intimacy with God, if you're a dweller, if you're more serious about your faith than just coming to church when it's convenient and looking for what God can give you, he'll protect you from the storm. The passage in verse 4 talks about a, the, the author draws a, a, a mental picture, a word picture of a, of a large brood who spreads, a, a large bird who spreads her wings to protect her brood from the storm. The Bible picks up on that theme multiple times. Psalm 36, 7, men and women find refuge in the shadow of your wings, almighty God. Psalm 57, verse 1, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Intimacy with God promises protection from the storm. Let me just ask you plainly, can your smartphone guarantee you that? Mine can't. And then finally, Intimacy with God promises he'll shield me with his faithfulness. The end of verse 4 talks about a shield. A shield is a very kind of all-purpose, general uh, weapon of warfare. It's a, it's a defensive weapon. Shield, a shield for a, a soldier is something that protects him or her. God promises to be that shield in an all-around, overall sort of way because he is faithful God promises to shield dwellers. I can't tell you how many times I've walked blindly into a circumstance or a situation, realized that it's sticky for a while, but only later, maybe months, maybe years later, looked back and thought, wow, I don't know how we came through that as a church. I don't know how I got through that individually. I don't know how I overcame that. That's God shielding the dweller. Look, if you can't find refuge, the point of the message today is really, I guess, twofold. Maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Or maybe you're not a dweller. So how do I become a dweller? How do I become the person of Psalm 91? Three quick things. You got to start by knowing Christ. Now, now, not just knowing who he was, but buying into he either was who he said he was or he wasn't. You know, I, I, I grow very weary of this cultural explanation of Jesus Christ. Well, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. But son of God, no. Let me ask you something. Anyone who claims to be the son of God is either the son of God or a crazy person, David Koresh, Right? So don't give me this, well, Jesus, you know, he's just a good man, a great teacher. He either was who he claimed to be or he wasn't. If he was who he claimed to be, have you responded to that knowledge? Is he boss? Is he Lord in your life? Here's number two. got to live in conscious fellowship with him. You know what that means? That means that I don't just lay down at night and say, okay, God, thank you for getting me through another day. And oh, by the way, I really messed up uh, early this morning and I shouldn't have said that to my kids. And man, I did something I should, I, boy, my thought life really been struggling. No, it's an ongoing process throughout the day whereby we confess sin before God and we say, that was out of bounds, God. I am so sorry. I'm going to try to do better. And we walk away from it. 
That's conscious fellowship. And then number three, we got to remain submissive and yielded to his way. Uh, I want to close the service today by giving you, I don't know, four or five minutes to process this. I'm not telling you not to go home this afternoon and research something on your smartphone. I do it all the time and love it. What I'm telling you is to examine the conscious trust level that you're placing in a heavenly father who loves you deeply and and knows you intimately and wants you to know him in return. So which is it? Who do you trust? We'll close the service in a moment with prayer. And then we'll play a little music. And if you want to sit right there in your seat, do a little business with God, I'd so strongly encourage that. Or if you want to leave your seat and come pray with me in the front of the stage, I'll be glad to do that as well. Today is the day for some of you to take that step away from technology and toward an intimate, trusting relationship with a God who loves you and knows you deeply. Let's pray. Father... This is so important, I believe, in our culture because we truly are learning to trust Apple and Samsung more than we trust you. And Father, the promise of Psalm 91 comes to those who dwell in the shadow, that secret place belonging to the Almighty. So open our eyes today And reveal to us whether or not our lives are on a path of dwelling or not. We pray these things because of our immense respect for you, Father. And our honor for your son, Jesus. We're going to play some music quietly and your heads can be bowed and you can stay sitting right there. This is not really a big invitation sort of church. But every now and then, I think people need to make a decision. And if coming forward and praying at this stage helps you, I so encourage you to do that. God bless you. Let's... Let's play. Father, where else can we go and find peace and refuge in the midst of a storm or a difficult circumstance, even a failure on our part in trying to overcome the difficulty that perhaps we've even created? Where else can we go?
God, I pray that today, this week even, you might open our eyes to the reality of the relationship you long to have with each of us versus what we're actually giving you. God, increase our intimacy, grow our closeness, I pray. Not solely that we might claim the guarantee and respond and enjoy the promise, but that we might simply know you better. I pray all of these things, Father, knowing full well that you are the Lord of my life. You are the God of this church. I pray we all respond like it and live like it. Pray these things because of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. I'll catch you next week.